will sanctify this time. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for your grace and faithfulness and whatever demons and technology glitches. It's in your hands, Father. You are faithful. We give you the praise and the glory in Christ's name. Amen. It's almost like that camera is frozen in a pause mode, but that's kind of that's kind of strange. All right, well, we're going to do chapter 28 today. We're going to do canonicity, and it's one of my favorite chapters. I like it a lot. We're very close to the end of the uh, of the book, so that's good. We have today and next week. So today we'll cover chapter 28. Next week will be chapter 29, uh, only 24 pages of reading, so that's not too bad. And then after that, um, if you don't already have a copy of it, as I mentioned, I want to do a few weeks on dispensations, and so I selected the Charles Ryrie text on dispensationalism. Uh, we'll go ahead and start with that. Uh, I'm going to supplement it with a bunch of other things, though, so don't be surprised. But I do want to use the basic text and outline that, that he has. Um, looks like there's 12 chapters. If we do one chapter per week, uh, we'll get a good quarter of material out of this. So um, anyway, uh, Dispensationalism by Charles C. Ryrie, and we'll make that our text uh, that will start uh, two weeks from today. All right, for today, though, chapter 28, the canonicity of the Bible. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth in preparation for the study of the Word of God. Let's did, did I pray already? I did pray already. Man, I'm like five kinds of confused right now. Do you think a second prayer might help? That would have been the third prayer? Okay. Am I on the camera now? I'm not. Okay. Fair enough. Canonicity. What in the world is canonicity? All right. The original text of the Bible is faithful and accurately reproduced. We've been studying that. But also, neither are there books missing from the original Bible. So we know that our Bible is reliable. But then the question is, well, should there be other books besides the 66? Should there be, you know, why don't we include some of these other books that maybe other branches of Christianity might include? And uh, how come we don't have the Apocrypha? How come the Catholic Bible is longer than our Bible? Things like that. So it is a legitimate question to make sure that not only do we are we clear on inspiration, but we're also clear on canonicity, which books are God-breathed, which books are not God-breathed. So uh, evangelicals hold that the canon, that is the normative collection of Scripture, uh, finished by the end of the first century, is closed. The, the uh, Revelation, the Apostle John, ended the, the canon of Scripture in 96 A.D., and so with, with Revelation and the warnings that are given in Revelation, chapter 22, don't add to this book, don't take away from this book. The canon is, uh, is closed. We, we possess in, in the entirety, the 66 books of the Bible, all that God intended to be there. And that's what it comes down to. If all scripture is God-breathed, theopanoustos, then that's our definition of canonicity. The books that God-breathed, those are the, the God-breathed and inspired books of the Bible. And uh, our role is to recognize which books did God breathe and, uh, and take it from there. God never intended any more books to be added to the Bible. So we have a Hebrew canon, we have a Greek canon, and then that's it. It does open the question, though, might he add to that in the millennial kingdom? Might there be additional revelation given uh, when Christ returns and, and in the millennial kingdom? Might there be additional doctrine that has to explain the animal ritual that will be uh, taking place in the Millennial Kingdom. Uh, those are still open questions, and we'll find out when we get there. <laughs> All right. Canon means rule or norm. 
And as used in the Bible, it means which books are the normative books for the Christian faith and practice. I actually find it highly amusing in non-biblical settings where other um, genres will actually use the term canon. Right? They talk about the Star Wars canon or the Star Trek canon or they talk about Harry Potter or any, anything. And these are the, these are the approved books. And there might be other fan fiction out there. There might be other, especially poorly made movies that, uh, that don't follow the canon of the true, uh, Tolkien text, for example, and, uh, things of that nature. So anytime I hear about uh, these other canons, I just smile and say, okay, thank you, Lord, that he's, uh, he's, we've had impact in culture, at least to that extent. Uh, the ones that are canonical are the ones that God inspired. I mean, that's just by definition. If God didn't inspire it, it's not scripture. But all scripture is God-breathed and inspired. As far as written by prophets or apostles or some of the other details and so forth, those are some of the more finer point arguments the different groups have made over the years. But boil it down to what did God breathe out? What did he inspire when he inspired a human author to uh, create this hypostatic union that we call the Bible? Crucial difference in Christendom emerges over the Apocrypha, these 11 pieces of Old Testament literature, um, seven entire books plus four parts of books that the Roman Catholic Church infallibly pronounced to be part of the canon in 1546. All right, so one thing you'll notice about 1546 is uh, how late it was, right? How, how, uh, and, and how artificial the need was to add books to the Bible. Essentially, it was because of the Protestant Reformation and the fact that they had no answers to the Protestant Reformation, so to try to find some answers and to validate their Catholic views, um, they adopted some, but not all, of the uh, apocryphal texts from the Old Testament. Anyway, Council of Trent. If you're not familiar with the Council of Trent, I recommend you study it, you learn it, get it in, in church history, get it where, wherever you can, because that council condemns all of us. You and I are anathematized repeatedly by the Council of Trent. And so uh, it's good to be aware of that and uh, uh, proceed from there. Anyway, Protestants call it the Apocrypha. Catholics call it the Deuterocanonical books. Deutero meaning second, right? Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. So Deuteros, Namos for Deuteronomy. Deuterocanonical for uh, the second canon books. At least they acknowledge that uh, this addition came quite late. So here's the Council of Trent. If anyone should not accept the said books as sacred and canonical, that's me, okay, entire with all their parts, and if both knowingly and deliberately, that's me, he should condemn the aforesaid tradition, let him be anathema. Okay? And, and if you don't understand what anathema is, it's like worse than excommunication. So not only are you kicked out of the Catholic Church, in time, but for all eternity. You know, there's no coming back. You're anathematized. You don't even get to go to purgatory, right? It's just sad to be anathematized in this way. Vatican II repeats the same language, affirming the Apocrypha to be part of the inspired word of God. So essentially, you have a good summary here. I think, I think he's very fair. Uh, Geisler is more fair than I will ever be. Um, and he's also written some some books on on evangelicals and Catholics and what do we have in common and where do we agree where do we disagree, and, and he's very gracious in uh, in those approaches. You think that was the reason why? I, don't know, I think he's just naturally a nice guy. 
So, all right. And uh, first of all, did you read this? You did, you did, you did, you did, you did, you did not. Left hand did not. Okay. Yes. Okay, let's go ahead and get the question now. Jeremiah asks, so a three-layer question here. Are there apocryphal books that are historical? Is there evidence for this? Are there any apocryphal books we use as evangelicals for historical purposes? Okay, good questions. Yes. Yeah, First Maccabees is generally reliable as good history, and you can correlate it very well with Josephus and other secular records. Uh, so you can have historical value in First Maccabees, uh, less so in Second, and almost none at all in Third or Fourth or anything later than that. I think. Um, and there are portions of, of other apocryphal books that are quoted in the New Testament, but um, that's, a, that's a longer answer to a different question, so I'll let that go, as uh, the book of Jude quotes the Assumption of Moses and other things like that. So um, because it's not Bible, we don't accept it as God-breathed and inspired, but because it is accurate and good historical information, we're fine with reading it uh, on that basis. So I hope that's... Uh, an adequate answer there for Jeremiah. All right. We're talking about 11 books. Uh, includes all 14 or 15 of the Protestant Apocrypha minus, and here's the thing, so we have a larger Apocrypha than what the Catholics accepted, okay? Because even the Catholics said, no, we're not going to do this prayer of Manasseh. We're not going to do one and two Esdras, which if they did, they'd have to call them three and four Esdras, because uh, they have, uh, that's what they call Ezra and Nehemiah. They call Ezra and Nehemiah 1 and 2 Esdras. Um, that way they get 3 and 4. It's complicated. <laughs> anyway, this is the listing of it here. Um, and you can find in your Logos software, if you have an RSV Bible, uh, it will have the Apocrypha built in. If you have the New American Bible, that's the Catholic Bible today, you can uh, find the Apocrypha there. Um, at least the, the ones accepted by Catholics. So it's a good chart with the listings there. Recognize some of them have different names. So the book, the Wisdom of Solomon is the same as the Book of Wisdom. Uh, Ecclesiasticus is also known as Sirach. Okay, so you got some, some names there. Uh, one Esdras in uh, the RSV Apocrypha is known as three Esdras in the Catholic Bible. Um... In, in uh, the RSV Apocrypha, they do break out um, Baruch into two books, uh, basically chapters 1 through 5, and then chapter 6 has its own title, the letter of Jeremiah. Um, although I think in the Catholic Bible, it's all just one book, the book of Baruch with six chapters. The um, two Esdras is four Esdras. All right, and here's where you have some of the additions. Okay, so those are the complete books. Those 11 are the complete books. Then you end up with additions. And so Esther is longer in the Catholic Bible than it is in the Protestant Bible. And you have the additions to Esther. Uh, they're numbered as 10-4 through 16-24, essentially. So you have a longer edition of Esther. Those additions that came much later 
Uh, I believe they are in Greek only. I'll have to double check that. Uh, most of this is not in Hebrew, except occasionally you can find a uh, what I think is is a translation back into Hebrew from what was originally uh, Maccabean Greek. But in any event, additions to Esther is a little bit longer. Some of the objections to Esther is that the name of God does not appear in Esther, uh, unless you get this longer version that has uh, some of those additions there. Uh, I don't recommend you read these unless you're just bored one day and you want a, some recreational amusement. Uh, Daniel's editions, several different ones. The Prayer of Azariah from the first century B.C. Um, that gets versified within the context of Daniel chapter 3. Uh, in the Catholic Bible. And then they add chapters 13 and 14, which we don't have. The the real book of Daniel ends at chapter 12. But uh, Susanna is uh, Daniel 13, and Bell and the Dragon is Daniel 14. And and I got all excited for this years ago because I like a good dragon story. Uh, this is not a good dragon story, okay? It's, it's stupid, I just got to tell you. And even if it was, <laughs> I mean... You don't need a, 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 a you don't need to know Greek or Hebrew or any I mean just read it and see this is too dumb to have been inspired by God the Holy Spirit so um, I'm just saying then the prayer of Manasseh second to first century B.C. now um, this is why even though they have eleven more books than our canon only seven extra books appear in the table of contents making the total forty six. The four books uh, that do not appear in the table of contents, the additions to Esther, the prayer, uh, the additions to Daniel, and uh, these items here. All right. So why did they do this? Because <laughs> they, were, they were helpless against Protestant argumentation, honestly. The, the non-Christian practices, praying for the dead and other things, uh, you're just not going to find them anywhere in the Bible. Even purgatory, where are you going to find? You don't find these things in the Bible. So they uh, they find some justification for some of their theories. Anyway, um, good information on this. Arguments for why, and and as you read through them, do, do these seem convincing? The New Testament reflects the thought of the Apocrypha and even refers to events contained in them. So it's possible you could read Hebrews 11.35 and think that some of the source material that motivates that comes out of 2 Maccabees. Further down, when we get to Geisler's response, we're going to see, no, it doesn't refer to that. It could refer to this instead, and it's a biblical reference, not an apocryphal reference. Uh, New Testament quotes mostly from the Greek Old Testament, which contained the Apocrypha. This gives tacit approval of the whole text, including the Apocrypha. Okay, that's just a fallacy right off the, uh, the bat. Also, we can't prove that the, the Septuagint of the first century contained the Apocrypha. We know that the Septuagint of later centuries did. Can we prove that the Septuagint of the first century did? Which would have been the Septuagint of the New Testament authors. Some of the early church fathers quoted and used the Apocrypha of Scripture in public worship. Uh, and some other church fathers accepted all of the books as canonical. That's a yes and no, and there's a qualification to that. I think Geisler does a good job spotlighting that as well. Early Christian catacomb scenes depict episodes from the Apocrypha, showing that they were a part of the early Christian's religious life. Okay. 
Anyway, I find all these arguments so weak. Um, the great Greek manuscripts interpose the Apocrypha among the Old Testament books. This reveals that they were part of the Jewish-Greek translation of the Old Testament. Again, you can demonstrate that with Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus and Vaticanus, the, the great Uncial Alexandrian manuscripts. However, we've got to qualify that significantly, and Geiser will do that here in just a few more pages, because they don't have the same books, they're not all in the same order, and there's a variety even in, in what, what is included. And, and it's 4th century, 5th century, it's not 1st century evidence to the apocryphal uh, inclusion within the Septuagint. Several early church councils accepted the Apocrypha. Yes and no. Again, that can be qualified as well. The Eastern Orthodox Church accepts the Apocrypha. Again, there's qualifications to be made on that statement. So, and, and that comes up as well. What's that? Okay. The Roman Catholic Church proclaimed it canonical of the Council of Trent. Okay, let's get your question on the microphone. Oh, sorry. Eight was a question. Since okay. eight is a question, so since they already had the split in one thousand something. Yeah, ten fifty four. Ten fifty four. Okay. Uh-huh. So they got so the Eastern and the West and now the Roman got together on this and and no. Okay. No. That's where I'm going. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Question. So and when did the Eastern Orthodox Church recognize the Apocrypha? They didn't. Well, they kind of did. They started to. And they had their own arguments, and they went back and forth in different ways. But you said a nine that they eight. Then it say eight that they do? Eight. That's not a true statement. Oh, it's not a true statement. But it's part of what they will claim when they're trying to support the Apocrypha as valid for canonicity purposes. Yes. They will point to the Eastern Orthodox Church and say, well, see, they accept it, which is not... 100% true. You, there's there's qualifications to that statement also. And we'll touch on that in a few pages down. That'll come up. Okay? Uh, the Council of Trent, 1546. Actually, there were several years. There was a long council over multiple years. But um, the official decree of the Roman Catholic Church, this is authoritative. If you If you bend the knee to Rome, you have to accept this as inspired or as dogma that uh, in 1546 they added these books to the Bible. And so it's still to this day in Catholic Bibles. And uh, and Lutherans and Episcopalians and Anglicans and, and Baptists and Bible churches, every flavor of Baptist just says, uh, no, that's not in our Bible, and that's not, it doesn't belong in the Bible. Um, our Bible was finished in the first century, not the 16th century. Okay? Um. There have been Protestant Bibles printed with the Apocrypha. Some of the earliest King James Bible print was printed with Apocryphal books uh, included. Some written in Hebrew have been found among the canonical Old Testament books in the Dead Sea community at Qumran. Yes and no. Again, we have to qualify this. And people making this claim, what is it they're not telling you about those Hebrew manuscripts? All right, so here's the response. And uh, everything they said is uh, questionable at best and fraudulent, uh, flat-out fraudulent uh, at worst. So, 
not once is there a definite quotation from any apocryphal book. The books that the Roman Catholic Church accepted that they told us were dogma. You've got to put Bell and the Dragon in your Bible. okay? But none of those apocryphal texts are quoted by any New Testament author. There are allusions, of course, and many of those were rejected by the Catholics as well as the Protestant, for example. The book of Enoch, where you have an allusion there about how Enoch prophesied and all these things. And yet, they didn't try to add the book of Enoch to their canon. Okay, So, again, some of their argumentation is, is weak. The bodily assumption of Moses in Jude 9, how Michael the archangel disputed with the devil, argued about the body of Moses. Okay, So that's included in the book of Jude, referencing a story that's told or alluded to, a story that can be found in the assumption of Moses, but that doesn't mean the assumption of Moses belongs in the Bible, the canon, and not even the Catholics tried to add it to the canon. That's what he's saying here with uh, this first point. There's also quotations. Yeah, the book of Jude uses, makes allusions to two different apocryphal texts. Okay, so if I were to read Jude right here in my Bible, uh-huh. there's, there's a ninth verse. Yep. <laughs> and it, and it talk, I don't know. It talks about the assumption of Moses and fighting over him with the archangels. That would Yes, so Jude verse 9, uh, and this is Jude verse 9, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. That's in our Bible. That's Jude verse 9. And that references an event at the death of Moses, Okay, an event that's not included in our Old Testament. You won't find that in Deuteronomy or Joshua or anywhere in the Old Testament. It is referenced in an apocryphal book, called the Assumption of Moses, all right? But we don't believe the Assumption of Moses belongs in the Bible. It was not God-breathed and inspired. It was not, and, and not even the Catholics try to put it in the Bible. You had a question, too? Do we know for certain that the Assumption of Moses was written before the book of Jude? Oh, that's a very good question. I, I think we do, yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Likewise, the other reference in verses 14 and 15 um, about Enoch and his prophecy of the second advent of Jesus Christ, um, this is coming from uh, the apocryphal book of Enoch, okay, sometimes called First Enoch or One Enoch. Um, but just because it's a reference, just because it's citing, doesn't mean it's biblical. First Enoch is not canonical, does not belong in our Bibles, and not even the Catholics tried to put it in their Bibles when they were adding books in the 16th century. I think that's significant as well. You know, Paul quoted pagan poets, he quoted pagan philosophers. That doesn't canonize those guys. Those guys were pagans. It just Paul took a quote from them, and under the leading of the Holy Spirit, those quotes uh, belong in the Bible. All right. That's the first point that he makes. He's got more. Um, The fact that the New Testament often quotes from the Septuagint in no way proves that the apocryphal books contained in the Septuagint are inspired. 
First of all, it's not even certain that the Septuagint of the first century contained the Apocrypha. That's the thing. There were several revisions of the Septuagint later. Aquila, uh, Theodotion, Symmachus, um, those were three ascensions, uh, recensions of the Septuagint after the Christian era. And a part of the work of Rabbi Akiba in what he was doing to try to discredit Jesus as the Christ. And so it's not certain that first century Septuagints uh, contained the Apocrypha. I think so, yes. Uh, everything in this chapter has a longer version in Geisler and Nick's general introduction to the Old Testament. Yeah, you will find this, this, is a, this is an excerpt from a much larger body of material. Thirdly, citations by the Church Fathers in support of the canonicity of the Apocrypha are selective and misleading. And so when the other side is trying to say, oh, look, the Church Fathers, they believe the Apocrypha was canonical. Wait a minute. And uh, so I think he gives the extra context for this that that uh, is, is, a, is a preferable understanding. So while some fathers seem to accept their inspiration, other fathers use them only for devotional and homiletical purposes, but they did not accept them as canonical. Uh, one of the best sources you're going to find on this is Roger Beckwith, and his is also available in Logos. This is the Old Testament canon of the New Testament church and its background in early Judaism. This is worth its weight in gold. This book is outstanding by Roger T. Beckwith. And this is kind of cool because this is the stuff that they're trying to say. They're defending their view and then when you look deeper into it, you say, "Uh, no, it's wrong. And it's so glaringly wrong I have to believe that they're intentionally misrepresenting it, which is, which is, you know, you don't want to just flat out call them frauds, but that seems to be what they're doing. So, um, Epistle of Barnabas, uh, Tertullian, they're not quoting wisdom, but they're quoting Isaiah 3.10. Okay? And so here's, uh, here's what they write, and then is that coming from the Apocrypha, or is that coming from Isaiah 3.10? Okay? In the Septuagint. Uh, Tertullian on the soul. He's not quoting the Book of Wisdom. He's quoting Psalm 139. Okay, so here's his. Uh, here's what he's writing. Wisdom is a loving spirit. Will not acquit a blasphemer of his words. Anyway, then you have the quote here in Psalm 139:23. It's fun to be able to pull these passages up and just put them side by side. Justin Martyr in his dialogue with Trifo is quite clearly not quoting the Book of Wisdom. He's quoting one of my favorite passages in uh, Proverbs 8. This is the passage we go to when we talk about the birthing of the humanity of Jesus Christ and the begetting of wisdom before his works of old. Proverbs 8 is a powerful chapter. And that's what Justin Martyr is quoting. He's not quoting uh, the Book of Wisdom. Anyway, uh, this is just such a great... um, Description here that Geisler is giving us. The Roman Catholic appeal to the use of the Apocrypha is without basis. In many cases, the fathers were not claiming divine authority for one or more of the 11 books. Uh, Rather, they were either citing a book that was part of the Hebrew canon or they were not quoting the Apocrypha books as scripture. That's another big deal. 
a lot of their quotes would say, thus saith the Lord, or as it says in the scriptures, or as the scripture says, and then they would quote a book. The, the times they quote, they do quote the Apocrypha, they don't introduce it with that language, giving it the, the divine authority. Does that make sense? So it's important that you understand those distinctions there. Okay, Emilio, on microphone, please. Can you, uh, can you go back to, um, dialogue with Trifa uh-huh. 129, what it, what it says there? Justin Martyr in Dialogue with Trifa 129. And this is a long section here. Oh. So when you click it, it gives you a broken link and it says, this book is not in your library? Okay. Okay. No, it is not. It is a, it is a fairly lengthy section. And uh, you can open it in English. You can also open it in Greek if you have the uh, Church Fathers in Greek. Here, the Book of Wisdom says, and then uh, the Lord made me as the beginning of his way for his works. From eternity he set me up. In the beginning, before he made the earth, before the fountains of water came. Anyway, all of this is coming out of Proverbs 8. All right? But he calls it the Book of Wisdom. I'm okay with that. Call it the book of wisdom if you want. I mean, Proverbs is the book of wisdom. Okay? But to then say, oh, look, Justin Martyr was quoting the apocryphal book of wisdom. Flatly, he's not. He's quoting Proverbs. He just called it the book of wisdom. And I think trying to use this as your proof text is dishonest. And, And I think you're smarter than that. I think you know better. When uh, when the the Catholic apologists are desperately trying to um, to defend these things, the fact that he calls Proverbs wisdom is in accordance with the common nomenclature of the earlier fathers. He's not the only one that calls Proverbs wisdom. Okay. Some individuals in the early church had a high esteem for the apocrypha. There were many individuals who vehemently opposed it. And here's a list, Athanasius, Cyril, uh, Origen, um, Jerome, great translator, Jerome. They all opposed the Apocrypha. Even the early Syrian church did not accept the Apocrypha in the 2nd century A.D. The Peshitta, have you heard of the Peshitta? Okay, it's the Syrian translation of, of the Bible. Um, it did not contain the Apocrypha. Something about the Peshitta too, the Syrian the Syrian Aramaic is um, is a cousin of, of, I think it's Western Aramaic, and so it's a cousin of the Eastern Aramaic that um, that can be studied as well. So anyway, the, this uh, Peshitta studies are useful for some text criticism work that we do. If you press the Catholic hard enough, he'll admit, okay, scenes from the catacombs do not prove the canonicity of, of the books that they depict. Okay. Somebody had an artwork in the tombs. Doesn't mean that book is canonical. 
None of the great Greek manuscripts contain all the apocryphal books. This is another red herring, right? They use this and they say, well, look, Sinaiticus, Alexandrinus, Vaticanus, these great uncial manuscripts, they contained the Septuagint. They contained, yes, they contained the Septuagint. They contained the Apocrypha as well. Well, no, they didn't. Not in the entirety, not like you're trying to tell me. In fact, only four, Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, and Sirach, uh, only those four are found in all of them. And the oldest manuscripts totally exclude the Book of the Maccabees. Yet, Catholics appeal to these manuscripts for proof of their deuterocanonical books that include the Apocrypha. And so their proof text doesn't work. And it's just disingenuous. No Greek manuscript has the same list of apocryphal books accepted by the Council of Trent. And again, the quotations here come from Beckwith in uh, this reference here called The Old Testament Canon of the New Testament Church and its Background in Early Judaism. This is just a a great reference if you want to do more work on Septuagint studies. Point seven. There are some important reasons why citing these church councils does not prove the Apocrypha belonged in the canon of the church. Being local councils, not universal councils, removes its uh, global authority. And then trying to claim statements of the popes as infallible, that, that puts you on very dangerous grounds because they contradicted each other. And you would have later popes uh, overruling earlier popes. And some popes were flat-out heretics, and they were rightly identified later on. So uh, you have a monothelite heresy by Pope Honoris, for example. Others that get mentioned here as well. Damasus gets mentioned. Others get mentioned in this chapter. Okay? Sure. Microphone, please. Understanding of Roman Catholicism is that it's only emphatic if they speak ex cathedra right. from the cathedral. When did that doctrine uh, <laughs> occur? Because I know this is where purgatory and limbo was it? Oh, wait, nope, we've been there in limbo for 200 years, but nope, it never was ex cathedra. Yeah. With this, when did they, one of these popes, were they questioned? Were they speaking ex cathedra? Yeah, that was a later development that they came up with to try to excuse some of the earlier embarrassments. So, okay, um, so ex cathedra mm-hmm. doctrine didn't occur until later. I want to say Vatican I is what I want to say, but I, I might be wrong on that. Uh, 19th century. 19th Yeah. And then Vatican II was in our lifetime. Yeah, or some of us, not the younger ones here, but some of us that can remember the 1970s. All right. Oh, my goodness. No, no. Wow. Okay. I'm getting old. Um, also, here's a, here's a fundamental flaw. I thought this was a brilliant point. Th- these books that we're debating, Tobit and Judith and all these things, they're not even Christian books. They were prior to the apostles, prior to the church. And even if you're not a dispensationalist, you should still have a problem. If, if, if there's a canonicity question here, that's a question that the Jews have to solve, not the church. Okay, The Christian church, we can resolve the, the Greek canon, we can resolve the New Testament canonicity issues. But trying to take 
the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century and start adopting books that the, the rabbis rejected, that the Jews, the Hebrews, never put in their canon. This is why Jerome said, no, it's not in the Hebrew canon, it's not going in the Vulgate, it's not going in the... He, he, re, he rejected the, uh, the apocryphal books at that time, and he was right to do so. These were the province of the Jewish community centuries before they rejected them as a part of the canon. So, yeah, I thought that was a great point. All right. And even, too, the books that, that Trent accepted are likely not even identical with the original versions of those books that, because they, they changed, too, over the centuries, right? you got to do text criticism on all those manuscripts, too. Anyway, councils of Hippo and Carthage, influenced by Augustine. Jerome's the better authority than Augustine as far as canonicity goes. Even Augustine recognized that the Hebrews rejected these as out of their canon. All right, so this is all good stuff here. I'm going to skip through that. you got the Council of Rome. You've got the Council. Somewhere in here, the Council of Elvira gets mentioned, which I really find hilarious because my daughter-in-law's name is Elvira. She had nothing to do with that church council, though, I'll tell you that. The later Council of Rome, which accepted apocryphal books, did not list the same ones that were accepted by Hippo and Carthage. It does not list Baruch. It contains only six, not seven, of the later books accepted by Trent. And even Trent lists Baruch as a separate book. It takes away chapter six out of the, the early five chapters there. All right. The Council of Trent. The infallible proclamation was made accepting the Apocrypha as part of the inspired word of God. They try to claim earlier councils, but... Anyway, I'm going to beat this dead horse a little bit more, but for now I want to skip on to some other material. Any questions on why? Again, this should be... The Catholics have more books in their Bible. They add those books in the 16th century when they couldn't answer the Protestant Reformation. They couldn't answer Luther, they couldn't answer Calvin, they couldn't answer any of the Protestant defenses for the uh, the Protestant canon. And, and so they just started adding extra books in there to try to defend their case. Okay? And it's just, it's it's clearly a case of special pleading. It's clearly just an a, a arbitrary thing. Yes, sir. Talking too much today. No, go ahead. Okay, so... Now, this uh, is your chance because of, of our student who's yeah, not with us. Yeah. Uh, okay, so I've heard the defense. I've heard said, uh-huh. well, it was only in Jerusalem where they ha- didn't have these apocrypha, but outside of Jerusalem, uh-huh. Catholic apologetic. Really? Well, outside of Jerusalem, they accepted all these books. The Jews did? Yeah. Yeah, show me the proof. I'm skeptical. Color me, uh, color me skeptical. And, and especially because we have so much literature. I mean, there is no shortage of written, documented literature from Babylon, from, you know, the Babylonian Talmud, from the, all of the, the commentaries of scripture, the Targums, for example. Uh, there is, if, if, if that was the case of what that person was telling you, I think we'd have plenty of evidence uh, on that, on that basis, which we clearly don't. All right. 
Arguments in favor of the Jewish Protestant Old Testament canon. Now, this is the line of argumentation you and I would take, okay? If we're going to try to say, you know what? We have 39 books in our Old Testament. We have 27 books in our New Testament. There are 66 books in the canon of Scripture, um, which is what we hold. This is our official church position. It's in our church constitution that we uh, we teach the 66 books of the Protestant canon. So, um, And there's good arguments for this. And he presents a very good case here related to uh, to this. Because fundamentally it comes down to, you can break it down into uh, two categories, the historical argument, the doctrinal argument, and really the true test of canonicity. We don't make Bible books Bible books. God does when he inspires them, right? All we do is recognize them as they're given. And, and since that's none of us that were here in the first century, it was those believers in the first century when you had living apostles, you also had word of wisdom, you had um, prophets, and you had these, these gifts, the discerning spirits. I think the discerning spirits gift was huge in canonicity recognition as they were receiving texts, that, including some that claimed to be uh, in the Bible that had no business being in the Bible. So, um, anyway, God determines canonicity. We discover which books were prophetic. And this was done immediately by the people of God to whom the prophet wrote. So when, when, when Colossae received a letter from Paul, they knew that it belonged in the Bible. It was God-breathed, it was inspired, they recognized it as such. There was never any question about it, not by those that received it. So this is, this is good material here too. And it describes how it worked in the Old Testament, how, the, uh, how they organized their canon, and then in the New Testament, how the church organized our canon. I enjoyed this chapter a lot. It's kind of interesting too. We had records of this, like Daniel is in captivity and he's reading the book of Jeremiah. You know, I mean, you talk about right off the press. He, he's, he's a contemporary. It's in his lifetime that Jeremiah wrote Jeremiah. And then there's Daniel in Babylon reading that text. I find that remarkable. That kind of proximity, that kind of closeness speaks well to the reliability of the Old Testament passages. When you find later prophets citing earlier prophets, um, when you find Peter, uh, Paul citing Luke, when you find Peter talking about Paul's writings and calling them scripture, that's a big deal, right? Second Peter 3, 15 and 16, our, our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. He wasn't writing his own wisdom. He was writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says some of them are hard to understand, which the untaught and the unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures. When he calls Paul writings scripture, this is, this is undeniable. So it's fun stuff. Um, Jude cites Second Peter. The book of Revelation is filled. Oh, here's a, here's a debate. Does Jude cite Second Peter or does Second Peter cite Jude? Okay, and, and you can debate that back and forth. But clearly, somebody was copying somebody. When you look at Second Peter chapter 2 and you look at the book of Jude, right? The same Holy Spirit inspired both books. I don't have any problem with both books in the New Testament, but one of them clearly relied on the other one for the material that they put in there. And I, my usual argument is that the, uh, the longer one was borrowing from the shorter one. Okay, uh, so... Peter was borrowing from Jude at that point. 
my opinion. Obviously, the book of Revelation is filled with things from Daniel and Zechariah and Isaiah, very reliant upon the Old Testament scriptures. Strong evidence that the apocryphal books are not prophetic. They didn't claim to be, and one actually said no. First Maccabees said no. Here's what it says in First Maccabees. There was a great affliction in Israel, the like whereof was not since the time that a prophet was not seen amongst them. Which is a very wordy way of saying, um, we're not living in the age of the prophets. They knew, the Maccabees knew that the prophetic era was over. So how do you take First Maccabees as being prophetic? It's not. There's no predictive prophecy in the Apocrypha. Okay? Yeah. If, if this is going to rise to the level of the Bible, then you would expect to find something in there that's God-like, something in there that's Bible-like, something in there like, give me a prophecy, give me something like, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, or something like that, that I can find a fulfillment in the New Testament. Because you're not going to get there in Bell and the Dragon, you're not going to get there in in uh, any of these apocryphal texts. There is no um, prophecy. Never listed in the Jewish Bible along with the prophets or any other section for that matter. They broke down their books into the law, the Torah, the prophets, the Nevi'im, and the writings, the Ketuvim. And then when they had some of the apocryphal scrolls also in their collections, they were in a separate place altogether. They were not included in Torah, Nevi'im, Ketuvim. So we got good witnesses here from Philo. Not a believer, but a good witness. An Alexandrian Jewish teacher quoted from the Old Testament prolifically. Usually it was to twist things and to allegorize things, and he really loved to blend uh, Hebrew uh, doctrine with Greek philosophy. He was uh, definitely a, a piece of work. I'm not a fan of Philo, but it's curious that uh, even though he quoted prolifically from virtually every canonical book, he never once quoted from the Apocrypha as inspired. Again, there's that, thus saith the Lord, or as it is written, or, you know, that as it is written is maybe the most profound because it's it's divine. Josephus, likewise, from 30 to 100 A.D., a Jewish historian, he excludes the Apocrypha. He numbers the Old Testament as 22 books. Now, 22 in the Hebrew is our 39. Okay? 39 books of the Protestant Old Testament is the 22 books of the Hebrew Old Testament. And you, you guys are going to learn that in your Hebrew class. Okay? You're going to learn that First and Second Samuel is just Samuel. First and Second Kings is just Kings. Okay, you're going to learn that the reason why they have a lower number, and then also you can combine Joshua with uh, uh, or Judges with Ruth, things like that. Uh, Lamentations can be appended to the end of, of Jeremiah, and you end up with a shorter listing, but you still have the same content as our 39 Old Testament books. Josephus never quotes the apocryphal books as scripture. He was familiar with them. There's no question he was familiar with them. And when Josephus was writing against uh, Apion, or Apion here, um, he does talk about the other written books, but the ones that are not divine, the ones that do not believe, uh, that do not belong in the Bible. This is kind of a lengthy Josephus quote, but it is worthwhile. Josephus says, We do not have an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from and contradicting one another, as the Greeks have, but only 22 books 
which are justly believed to be divine. And of them, five belong to Moses, which contains his law, and the traditions of the origin of mankind till his death. This interval of time was little short of 3,000 years. That's a key, too, by the way, when you're doing your Old Testament chronology, that Josephus was not aware of the later changes that would be made in the second century that Akiba and his crowd was involved with. As to the time from the death of Moses till the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, who reigned as Xerxes, the prophets who were after Moses wrote down what was done in their times in 13 books. The remaining four books contain hymns to God and precepts for the conduct of human life. So this corresponds exactly to the present Jewish and Protestant Old Testament. The Jewish teachers acknowledged that the prophetic line ended in the 4th century B.C. There were no prophets after Malachi. No written prophets, no speaking prophets, not until John the Baptist arises do you have the herald of the coming Christ. We call them the 400 silent years for a reason. Well, I guess they stopped being silent when we needed to squeeze a few apocryphal books into our Bible and call it a deuterocanon and, and uh, things like that. You can find plenty of additional rabbinical statements on the cessation of prophecy. Beckwith is your is your go-to source there. Jesus and the New Testament writers never once quoted the Apocrypha as Scripture. Again, if they quoted, if they alluded, if they betrayed an awareness of the Apocrypha, it never came with the as it is written or as God said. They never used that uh, scriptural basis for their citation. Hebrews 11 may allude to 2 Maccabees, although could also be a reference to 1 Kings 17. I think it's much more likely that Hebrews 11.35, women received back their dead by resurrection, others were tortured, not accepting their release. Okay, that, that seems pretty general, right? It's almost like a I don't want to say it's like a Nostradamus prediction, but it is so vague that could it come from uh, a different source besides Second Maccabees 7 or Second Maccabees 12? Yeah, it very well could have come from First Kings 17 when this woman received back her dead by resurrection. All right. Yeah, this is just fundamental. He gets a little wordy on this. All right, Gemnia. You ever heard of Gemnia? This is 100 A.D. This is after the destruction of Jerusalem. Jewish scholars at Jamnia did not accept the Apocrypha as part of their divinely inspired Jewish canon. Since the New Testament explicitly states that Israel was entrusted with the oracles of God and was the recipient of the covenants and the law, the Jews should be considered the custodians of the limits of their own canon. By the way, I, I agree with this. Romans 3.2. What advantage has the Jew? What is the advantage of circumcision? Okay, this is Romans 3. God wrote this. This is inspired. What advantage has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? First of all, great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. To me, that speaks volumes. To me, that this tells us that Israel, in their stewardship, they were the vested stewards entrusted with the Hebrew canon of Scripture. That he spoke through Hebrew prophets, they, they co-authored his divinely inspired books, that they were custodians of those books, they preserved them, they copied them, and, th and their recognition of canon 
is what we should look to, not the Roman Catholic uh, opinion in the 16th century A.D. That's just ludicrous. They, the Jews should be considered the custodians of the limits of their own canon, and they have always rejected the Apocrypha. All right, there's Pope Damasus, as I mentioned. He was a piece of work. By the way, um, he was the one, yeah, 305 to 384. Um, for centuries, the uh, Roman emperors, they held the title of Pontifex Maximus. It wasn't even a Catholic title. It was a, it was a political title. That goes back to ancient Babylon and passed through Pergamum and reached Rome. And the Roman emperors used the title. Julius Caesar was the Pontifex Maximus of the of the Roman state religion. And and emperors held it. Emperors held it until one Roman emperor. I think his name was Gratian. Somebody. He said, "No, I don't like this title. I'm a born again believer in Jesus Christ for Christian reasons." He, he would not accept the title of Pontifex Maximus. He said, that's wrong. And so he rejected it. Well, guess what? This Pope Damasus character, he said, oh, okay, I'll take it. And popes have been using it ever since. Ever since Damasus, they've been calling themselves Pontifex Maximus. When the Roman emperor rejected it for Christian reasons. That's, uh, that's staggering. Anyway, side note. Not on your quiz, but it's good to know about. And yeah, this goes into, well, which Pope statements are acceptable and which ones can we find infallible? Is he speaking ex cathedra? Are there other things here? Catholic scholars do admit that some Popes taught error, were even heretical at times. Yeah, here it is. Geisler and Mackenzie. Great reference. Romans and Catholics... Uh, Roman Catholics and Evangelicals together, I think is what it's called. Many of the early church fathers spoke out against the Apocrypha, including Origen, Cyril, Athanasius, uh, and the great Bible translator Jerome, greatest biblical scholar of the early medieval period, translator of the Latin Vulgate, explicitly rejected the Apocrypha as not a part of the canon. He said the church reads them for example and for instruction of manners, but does not apply them to establish any Doctrine. Disputed Augustine's unjustified acceptance of these books. At first, he even refused to translate them into Latin, but later made a hurried translation of a few books. He did. Yeah, Augustine, he was, he was back and forth on it, but he did accept some of the apocryphal books. That was mentioned earlier, too. All right. Thus, altogether, there come to be 22 books of the old law according to the letters of the Jewish alphabet. That's why 22 was so popular, trying to make it match up the letters of the alphabet. Uh, five of Moses, eight of the prophets, nine of the hagiographa. Although some set down Ruth and Kenoth among the hagiographa and think that these books ought to be counted separately, if you detach Ruth from the back of, of uh, Judges and you detach um, Song of Solomon off of the back of Judges, of, uh, uh, I'm sorry, detach uh, Lamentations from the back of Jeremiah, then you can get 24 books instead of 22 books in the Hebrew canon. And he actually preferred that uh, because he had this theory, 
<laughs> that if you have 22 books of the Hebrew canon, then you can find a parallel with the 24 elders in, in Revelation 4 and 5. The elders that were wearing crowns that are bowing before the throne. So, yeah, there's a theological problem there. Um, they did some strange things with that. Preface to Daniel, Jerome clearly rejected the apocryphal editions. Bell and the Dragon, Susanna argued only for the canonicity of those books found in the Hebrew Bible. All right. Even during the Reformation, you had Catholics disagreeing. Cardinal Cahitan, who gets featured in some of the Luther movies that you might see, he opposed uh, Martin Luther, but he wrote a commentary on all the authentic historical books of the Old Testament, and he excluded the Apocrypha. Okay, so, um, all right, so how does he... How does he deal with Trent then? I mean, he's, he's a good Catholic in good standing. He's a cardinal. But this book was written in 1532. It's interesting. Excluded the Apocrypha. Martin Luther, John Calvin, the Reformers. All right, we're going to get past this. I'm trying to keep an eye on the clock and see. We're on page 528. And we've got to go all the way to 540. If I'm going too fast, let me know. Do you have any questions at this point? Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther, 1517, nailed his theses, and then all kinds of disputes and back and forth until the 1540s when Trent locked it down and said, that's it. You either accept our Bible or you are anathematized. You are out of uh, the faith. Okay? When, they, when, they, when Rome anathematizes you, it's worse than excommunication. You're kicked out of the Roman church now and forever. Anyway, this is fun too. We we do more with this in our church history class. Okay, We go through all the different uh, anathematizations, and, and we have dozens. Okay, There's many, many reasons why, uh, according to Roman doctrine, we're not saved, and we can't be saved without the Roman church. All right. So, Here's where they made their mistake, and yet they stand by it. They have to. They can't deny Trent. You cannot deny the authority of a church council and still be a, a, a real Catholic. They, they've painted themselves into that corner. They've lifted up these councils uh, on, on that divine basis. So the infallible, quote-unquote, pronouncement by the Council of Trent that the apocryphal books are part of the inspired word of God is unjustified for many reasons. And um, hmm. the statement itself actually reveals how fallible an allegedly infallible statement can be, since it is historically unfounded, being a polemic overreaction, an arbitrary decision that involved a dogmatic exclusion. So, yeah, prophetically unverified, historically unfounded, a polemical overreaction, and this kind of narrows it down for you. I mean, this is like self-evident when you start looking at it. Um, polemical action against Luther, supporting teaching that he had attacked. So he attacks the prayers for the dead, rightly so. Why are you praying for the dead? Well, you can find a, a reference in Second Maccabees chapter 12. Thus he made atonement for the dead that they might be freed from his sin. I find that amusing too because 
I'm not saying Maccabees belongs in the Bible, but anyway, I'll let that go for now. I'm not an expert on Second Maccabees. An arbitrary decision. Not all the Apocrypha was accepted by Rome. To, to even attempt such a thing would be ludicrous. In fact, they arbitrarily accepted a book favoring its belief in prayers for the dead, and then they rejected one opposed to prayers for the dead. That's why they couldn't put uh, four Esdras in there. There were 14 books, and yet they only selected 11 for their canon. You know, that's called cherry-picking. That's called selective inclusion. That's called uh, your arguments are, sh- are shaky, and I'm not buying it. Because that's, that's how many there are. That's how many exist. Right. Various various places, various times. So at 100, there's 14 recognized by Jews or by everybody called the Apocrypha. Oh, no, they didn't call it that at the oh, time. Okay. Yeah. There's 14 books. Uh-huh. 14 books that eventually you can find some of them in different Septuagint editions. Does that, does that help? Because that's because the Septuagint didn't include them in their okay. in their manuscripts. Septuagint, the, Greek, the uh, Greek translation of the Hebrew, of the Hebrew right? Didn't have these fourteen, and then in 1542, 11 of them were selected. Eleven out of the fourteen were selected okay, like after the fact, right? Okay, very selective, very arbitrary. And, and quite obviously special pleading. Let's just find a book that says what we need it to say so that we can win an argument with the Protestants. Okay? Yeah. The very history of this section, of whether you want to call it two Esdras or four Esdras, reveals the arbitrariness of the Trent decision. Uh, Second Esdras was written in Aramaic by an unknown Jewish author somewhere around 100 A.D. We're talking about, that's when Revelation was written. That's when, I mean, it's after the Hebrew canon, clearly. Circulated in an old Latin version. The Latin Vulgate printed it as an appendix to the New Testament. And it disappeared from Bibles until Protestants, beginning with this guy, John Hogg, began to print it in the Apocrypha based on Aramaic text, since it was not in Latin manuscripts of the time. However, in 1874, a long section in Latin uh, was found by Robert Bendy in a library in Amiens, France. And um, here's Metzger's quote on it. Anyway, it's just, it's a mess. And none of them, by the way, this this kind of speaks to this as well, none of them were copied in the volume and the sheer numbers and the reliability that the, the biblical texts were copied with. I think that's pretty um, pretty clear as well. Anyway, this is probably overkill. I don't know if uh, if it's worthwhile, but at least it's good to know where it is. It's good to know that you can come back to this chapter and refer to it down the road. It's good to know if you find yourself in a conversation with a, with a Roman Catholic who thinks you have a, a, a Bible that's missing some books. 
um, and you know what to what to look for. And, and in addition to this chapter, I recommend the one that he co-wrote with Mackenzie on Roman Catholics and Evangelicals, because he uh, he does a a more comprehensive job there. But does the church determine the canon, or does the church discover the canon? Okay, yeah, we don't determine it. God determined it when he wrote it. The church is the mother of the canon or a child of the canon? The magistrate of the canon or the minister of the canon? Do we regulate the canon or do we recognize the canon? Do we judge the canon? I mean, do you imagine the authority we must have if we can judge what's the Bible and what's not the Bible? Mm, blasphemy. No, we're a witness of the canon. We're not master of the canon, we're the servant of the canon. So, I like that chart. That's That spoke a lot to me. All right, get past this section. Yeah, they do have an equivocal use, too. Uh, the equivocal use of the word witness. When we speak of the church being witness to the canon, we do not mean in a sense of being an eyewitness. Okay, because only the eyewitnesses were the eyewitnesses. And that's important, okay? Here we are 20 centuries, 21 centuries after the fact. We weren't there. But the ones who were there, the ones who were in a position to accept and recognize or reject, they accepted what they accepted, they rejected what they rejected. Only the people of God contemporary to the events were first-hand witnesses. Remember, there were some false letters that were sent around. One of them was sent to, to Thessalonica, and, and it had Paul's name on it that said, Oh, sorry, I was wrong. You missed the rapture. You're in the tribulation now. Good luck. Okay? Words to that effect. And so Paul had to write back and correct him and say, wait a minute. It's a phony. It's a fraud. You can tell it's not mine because here's my signature. And, and he said, you know you can't be in the tribulation because the rapture has to come before the tribulation. That's why Second Thessalonians is in our Bible. But I think it's worthwhile noting that those, those phony letters were circling around and the, the early church had to identify what was real and what was phony. That's why you still had living apostles and you still had gifted prophets and you still had uh, the word of wisdom and, and the discerning of spirits. So that's the role of recognizing the scripture. And it was done in the first century. Which is why, my opinion, again, opinion, there were some early churches in different places that had questions about the book of Revelation. That they were slow to accept it and I think some of that slowness came about because when John wrote Revelation, he was the last living apostle. And so they, they accepted the testimony of, of John. They accepted the testimony of his students, of his followers, of his churches, in, of the seven churches in Asia Minor. And, and on the basis of those witnesses, the ones that were further away, the ones that were not immediately recipients, it, it was the second century, the third century, they started to question, okay, does this belong in the Bible? And they had questions, but they resolved it, okay? And they resolved it simply. It was not ever a, a serious question as to as to those books. What's that? Yeah, they, they needed Twitter and an updated website for... All right. So, uh, we're not judge and jury, okay? Although he tries to use this metaphor here. The earlier and later church is more like a jury than a judge. This part didn't really hit me like some of the earlier parts did. All right. I mean, frankly, to try to defend Trent 
as uh, having any value is a is a lost cause. All right, what else do we have to deal with besides Trent? Okay, besides the fact that we have the correct canon, the Catholics added extra books for uh, nefarious purposes. Um, what else? Are there any other books are missing? Maybe we're missing a book of the Bible. Okay, maybe the Protestants are missing some, and the Catholics are missing some, and and uh, are we sure that we have the entire Bible? Was there anything that was written after the canon was closed? So those are good questions, and uh, we answer them. This is the basic evangelical answer, which is a biblical answer. The New Testament was written between AD 50 and AD 90. I would push that to 96 for Revelation. And we might even drop it down to 40, 45 for the Gospel of Matthew. Okay? The book of James. There's debate on some of those. All major branches of Christianity accept its 27 books as inspired and canonical. That, so that's Catholic, Orthodox, and Protestant. There are several lines of evidence that support the evangelical belief. The New Testament canon is closed. Jesus primar- promised a closed canon by limiting teaching authority to the apostles. Because he said, when I send the Holy Spirit, he will bring to your remembrance what I spoke to you. So we're limiting it to the apostles' lifetime, and they died before the end of the first century. Why do we think it's complete? A couple of arguments. Again, there's the promise of Jesus. Okay. When he says not one jot or tittle will perish, when he talks about the complete canon, he talks about these things. He commissioned the twelve. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will guide you into all truth. This is why it's said of the church. It's built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. It can't be any more than 27 books, which means we can't add the, the Quran, we can't add the Book of Mormon, we can't add uh, the, the uh, Watchtower Tract Society, we cannot add any of these other things that came along in later centuries and claimed to be from God as an update to the Bible. They are not. The canon is closed. And with the apostles and the prophets laying the foundation, the canon is closed. All in the first century was a requirement to be an eyewitness of, of the resurrected Lord. 1 Corinthians 9.1 Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? I had a man one time knock on the church door and I opened it. And he stood right there and he started to rebuke me. He claimed to be an apostle. And I looked at him and I said, that's not possible. You can't be. You're not old enough. I said, the last, the last one called as an apostle was the apostle Paul. And unless your apostolic calling precede Paul's apostolic calling, you're not an apostle. 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to uh, Cephas, then the, to, the, to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. No one had an apostolic call and appearance after the apostle Paul. So the fellow that was at my door that claimed to be an apostle was not old enough and uh, started to complain about whatever. And so I rebuked him in the name of Jesus Christ and said, leave and never come back. He turned around and I never saw him again. All right. 
So yeah, we have the promises of Jesus. We have uh, only one authentic record of apostolic teaching in existence, and that's the 27 books of the of the New Testament. Other writings, the, the post-apostolic writings, the church fathers, the, the other writings that followed never claimed to be scripture. They all knew that they were living in the post-apostolic era. They knew that the apostles were gone. They said so in their own writings. I think that's significant as well. This is why um, they never tried to add some of the, the New Testament apocryphal books, and they get listed here as well. Those were never attempted to be added to the Bible, not, not even by the, the Roman church. But no, we have the 27 books and the canon is closed. And logically now, why would God not close the canon? Why would he not give us a perfect thing? The faith that is for, uh, that is once and for all delivered unto the saints. Since the God of the Bible is all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, it follows, logically, that he would not inspire books for the faith and practice of believers down through the centuries that he did not preserve. This is the argument against the fact that, oh, maybe we left one out. Maybe there's a 68th book out there. Maybe it belongs in there, but golly, we just missed out on it. No one put it in there. You think God would really let that happen? You think he'd be clueless enough to inspire a text and then not preserve it? It doesn't make any sense. Lost inspired books would be a lapse in God's providence. The God who cares for the sparrows will certainly care for his scriptures. You know that verse? Not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the will of God the Father. That's a staggering verse. Since he cares for the sparrows, he certainly cares for the scriptures. The God who has preserved his general revelation in nature will certainly not fail to preserve his special revelation in scripture. In short, if God inspired them, God will preserve them. It's just unthinkable otherwise. The idea that they're missing. Okay? Not only is it logical... The evidence of history plays it out. We've seen how these books were preserved. We've seen how the manuscripts were copied. We've seen how the collections were made. All right, yeah. Contemporaries of the apostles show a concerned awareness of their mentors' writings, quoting from them prolifically. Following them, the fathers of the 2nd to 4th centuries made some 36,289 citations from the New Testament. That's a lot. Okay? You can actually reconstruct almost the entire New Testament just from their quotes. There's just so many of them. All but 11 verses can be reconstructed. Including these from the Gospels, these from Acts, from Paul's epistles, and so forth. Good question. What are the 11 verses? I have no idea. Ask Geisler. Geisler, Introduction to the Bible, Chapter 24. Patristic Witnesses to the Text of Scripture. You said you had that book at home? Okay. Yeah. Good reference. When challenged by heretical teaching, such as Marcion, the Gnostic, he had a goofy canon. He, uh, he decided that uh, only part of Luke belongs in the Bible and ten of Paul's epistles belong in the Bible. And that was his Bible. That was his New Testament canon. And um, so the uh, 
They condemned him. They got together in a church council and said, Mark Young, you're, uh, you're crazy. But not only that, though, think about it. It actually kind of put a stick under their, their whatever and kind of motivated them to say, you know, we probably should create a canonical list and, and say this is what we accept, not what that guy's telling you. This is the, uh, this is the Greek canon. And so they did. They started working together from that moment onward with these various canons, the Muratorian canon, the Apostolic canon, the Cheltenham canon, Athanasian canon. Boy, he's a good guy. I like it. I'm a big fan of Athanasius. Well, as the old Latin translations, culminating in the late 4th and early 5th centuries in the councils of Hippo and Carthage. By then, it was absolutely settled, and no one has disputed it until, well, for the New Testament, it's never been disputed. Like I say, and then Trent came along and, and added some apocryphal books to the Old Testament. No significant debate since 400 A.D. Yeah, there were some that were disputed for a little while. Some that they, some might consider the epistle. And here's here's your New Testament apocrypha. If you're not familiar with these, pseudo Barnabas. The pseudo means not really Barnabas, but somebody claiming to be Barnabas, writing in his name. That's a giveaway right there. Okay. The epistle to the Corinthians. This would be uh, First Clement to the Corinthians. The Gospel according to the Hebrews. The Epistle of Polycarp to the Philippians. The Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve. I mean, we have copies of all of these things, and, and they're worth looking at for vocabulary studies and other historical value, but they don't belong in the Bible. Ignatius wrote seven epistles, kind of comparable to the Apostle John and his seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. Shepherd of Hermas, Apocalypse of Peter. All right but none of them were ever seriously thought to be long in the Bible. The Protoevangelium of James. Some of these uh, talk about little miracles Jesus did as a boy. And it's just fan fiction. Okay, I mean, the Holy Spirit didn't inspire any of it. It was just early Christians just started writing stuff. All right. Which, by the way, a couple of those little snippets like the childhood miracles of Jesus and some of that, um, get reproduced in the Quran. How crazy is that? They don't, they don't belong in the New Testament, but I, but I guess the Quran can do whatever they want to do. Yeah. All right, so we have reasons for rejecting it, clearly. None of them ever experienced more than a local or temporary acceptance. Most of them had best a quasi-canonical statement, usually not even that. No major canon or church council ever accepted any of them as part of the inspired Word of God. Limited and temporal acceptance, explainable if they thought they were written by an apostle until they learned otherwise. Or, Colossians 4.16 sparked a few, because at the end of Colossians, Paul said, When this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So Paul said, there's another letter, I'm sending it to the Laodiceans, when when they get theirs and you get yours, just trade letters and, and read read their letter and they can read your letter. What is the, the letter to the Laodiceans? Is, does it belong in the Bible? Some people think it was the book of Ephesians. Okay, Or it was just a, a, a lost letter. It's not 
canonical, does not belong in the Bible. But boy, did that spark some uh, fan fiction to get written in some things. Supposedly the epistle to the Laodiceans. Anyway, no evidence that any inspired book has been lost. We know from his providence he wouldn't. God's not careless to forget a book of the Bible. And if, if, it, if there is one out there, and we know that the church fathers quoted from all of these books, thousands and thousands of quotes, well then, shouldn't they also have quoted from that book you're telling me now is missing? Where is that? Find me the church father quoting from it. They don't, because it doesn't exist. There never was one. All right. Unlike other holy books, including the Quran, the Book of Mormon, the Bible alone has been supernaturally confirmed to be the Word of God. Only the scriptures were written by prophets who were supernaturally confirmed by signs and wonders. When Moses questioned how his message would be accepted, God performed miracles through him that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, had appeared to you. When Korah rose up to challenge Moses, God intervened to vindicate his prophet. All right, I'm going to run out of time, but this is the conclusion now. No other book in the world has authors who are confirmed in this miraculous manner. Yeah, what miracles did Joseph Smith do? What miracles did Muhammad do? Confucius. Any of these guys? None. Zero. But God gave uh, credentials for his authors. Here's the conclusion. The Bible has is the only infallible written revelation of God to man. It's complete since both Old and New Testaments contain all the books God inspired for the faith and practice of future generations, confirmed by the promise of Christ, the providence of God, the preservation by the people of God, and the proclamation of the early church. Further, the Bible is sufficient for faith and practice. Nothing more is needed. Another one of my favorite passages, right? In uh, 1 Peter, all things necessary for life and godliness. And praise God for that. Praise God for that. Or is it second? No, it's First Peter. Second Peter. Why can I never remember this? Here it is, Second Peter. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Everything. You know what I think everything means? I think everything means everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. By these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. The inspired word of God is all we need for life and godliness. If it's not in this book, we don't need it for life and godliness. This book is sufficient. I hold to the sufficiency of Scripture. Absolutely. And it's the only book sufficient for faith and practice. Nothing more is needed. The spiritual guide to life needs no new chapters. The author inspired a complete manual from the beginning and has preserved all of it intact. All right, so that's the text. Here's your sources. Yeah, Norman and uh, Geisler and Nix, A General Introduction to the Bible. All right. 
So next week will be our final week, our conclusion to this systematic theology. Uh, we'll have chapter 29 to cover, summary of the evidence for the Bible. It's really a tie together to wrap up what the last 19 weeks have been about. So uh, you'll, you should have no issues reading that. And then, like I say, for two weeks from today, when we, we're going to finish uh, Systematic Theology Volume 1, we're not done with all of Systematic Theology because there's still Volumes 2, 3, and 4, all right? Just taking a little break from some Geisler for a bit. Um, I do want to do some classes on dispensationalism. So if you uh, don't already have this text, dispensationalism, yeah, I'm going to use that one too. But Charles Ryrie will be my basic text. I will supplement it with uh, Larkin. I will supplement it with Theme. I will supplement it with Bolander. I will supplement it with um, uh, others. Okay, We'll get some, uh, some George F. Trench in there. Uh, so you see the introduction to the fullness of time. Well, um, probably 12 weeks, I'm guessing, because there's 12 chapters in, uh, in uh, Ryrie. So let's just plan on 12 weeks, and then maybe we'll, we'll supplement it with a few more. Basically one quarter of the, yeah. And that'll be a good enough break so that by the time we do get back to Geisler, Volume 2 will be fresh and ready for another dose of, another dose of Norm. Okay. Volume two on God and on God and creation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not arguing with you. I like. I like volume two. I like volume three. I like volume four. Yeah. So God and creation, which is interesting because it's got some slight variance on. Our understanding of, of the six days. But God and Creation is a great volume to sin and salvation in volume three. Especially if you need to sort out some quasi Calvinist understandings. Sin and salvation is very well done. And then church and last things for volume four. So you get your ecclesiology and your eschatology in volume four. All all excellent material. So stay tuned for those. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. Thank you for these students. Thank you for their faithful reading. We continue to uh, to thank you and praise you for your grace and your glory. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I didn't ask. Were there further YouTube questions from Jeremiah or anybody? No. Okay. Good, good, good. I hope you can...